if I was going to bother to make a product that's going to exist in the world and we're going to have this awesome technology in the fabric and the designs that work functionally for these variety of outdoor activities, I absolutely want to fit the most number of customers possible. And there's there's really good data out there on the the sort of body measurements of North American and global female populations. And it was just an essential component of it to at least try to fit more body shapes. Mm-hmm. And, and we're succeeding at it, um, but it, it's just essential. That was Jennifer Loofborough, the owner of Alpine Fit, an Alaska-based outdoor clothing company that specializes in offering a variety of fit options for different body types. Jennifer's active outdoor lifestyle influenced her decision to start the brand. From 2004 to 2009, she kayaked the outer islands of Alaska's southeast coastline. In that time, she gained an intimate understanding of what basic gear is needed on those trips and how it's important to consider things like weather and the duration of the trip. She's actually been told that she's the bullseye of her target audience. She says that she lives her life like an endurance sport, so finding a balance between work and rest is important. That balance hasn't always been easy to find, but she's getting better at it. So here she is, Jennifer Loofborough. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. What was the last adventure you went on? Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, we went on a cabin trip to Manitoba, uh, which is down on the Seward Highway on the way towards Seward last weekend for an overnight trip with um, the Manitoba Huts Association huts and yurts. So I took my family. I have two kids. We got out for hiking with the kids, backcountry skiing, cross-country skiing, and hanging out in a cabin overnight. And is that who you usually go with, your two kids? Uh, I combine solo adventuring, adventuring with my husband and adventuring with our kids, depending on what the activity season opportunity is. And what do you look for when you're scouting out places to go? Well, that's a good question. Um, It has to be... What do I look for when I'm scouting out a location? Well, it has to suit the group that's going, uh, the skill level, comfort level, interest level. So in terms of something like the adventure I just mentioned, which was with my family, mm-hmm. it needed to be hiking trails or cross-country skiing trails that the kids can actually do. And we have the equipment to get ourselves there and certainly the gear to wear to get ourselves there. Um, but yeah, all of the above. And what does a group outing look like versus, you know, a solo mission? Uh, Well, a group, you really have to consider who the group is and what their needs and um, comfort and safety level um, are. And then a solo mission, you definitely are just sort of guided by your own passions and interests and what you feel comfortable doing. Um, especially, I guess, if that's alone in the wilderness in Alaska, you know, certain, certain, uh, bear protection and things like that, but then also being a woman recreating alone out in the wilderness, there's other considerations as well. So picking the time of year, the daylight hours and the place that you go and the gear that you bring, um, to make sure that you get back safely. So that's actually similar to both groups, but, um, different considerations, depending if you're alone or with other people. When you get out there, what's the first thing you do? Um, what do you mean when I get out there? What's the first thing I do? I don't know. I I, I feel nervous answering your questions. I got to shake it off. <laughs> no, no. This is this is so mellow. <laughs> I know it's so mellow. I'm just like, I'm like, just like jacked up ready to answer these questions so perfectly. And it's like, okay, you just want to know what I actually <laughs> um, think and feel. Okay. Um the first thing I do when I get out somewhere is just try to enjoy the journey as well as the destination that you're pursuing. So 
Uh, right now it's still winter conditions here and I just genuinely love being out there. So taking in the scenery, mm -hmm. um, not thinking too much about what you had to do before you got there and what you have to do after you're done spending time outside, but just trying to really be in the moment and be present to it and enjoy every component of it. You know, I feel like every time I find myself being overwhelmed or burnt out, if I go to nature, I'm able to recenter myself and regain that equilibrium that was missing. Are, are you similar? Totally. Um, yes, I went for a really lovely evening run in the sunshine the other day. And the other choice was to sit in front of my computer and try to problem solve some recent, you know, issues that we're having, trying to get the right fabrics by the right times we need them. And I really had to do some problem solving, thinking about what I want and to just go and get away from the computer, get away from the uh, notebook and design books and just think and maybe let your mind wander away from those topics for a bit mm -hmm. um, can really make you you know, more grounded and more sure about what you want to do to, you know, just more grounded. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very similar or maybe exactly similar because mm -hmm. I, I do a lot of work on my computer. All of my jobs are on the computer. And I find that when, you know, I get stuck in computer mode, you, um, there's so many like roadblocks and to alleviate those roadblocks or get them out of the way, I'll go for a walk, you know, and I'll just, you know, breathe in the fresh air and listen to a podcast or listen to music and get my mind off of the thing that I was struggling with. Mm -hmm. And then I would say like 98% of the time, I figure it out in that walk. Oh, totally. Yeah, there's something definitely to be said for what the kind of the back of your mind is doing while you're kind of letting... Um, you know, the rest of your body have blood moving around and, and, and everything. It's great. For me, it, uh, it doesn't happen as often as it should, but like I said, it pretty much works every time when you're, you know, working, do you have the opportunity like every time to be like, this isn't working. I need to get my mind out of this, this spot and, you know, get some fresh air. Uh, that's a great question. I don't always have the opportunity to go get that uh, fresh air and clear head. Sometimes you have to power through things. Yeah. Um, but it's the looking forward to that next time that you're going to get out that that possibly helps you, um, you know, channel and muster that energy in the moment when you don't have the, the time or the chance to get outside. And um Somebody once asked me what balance looks like for me and a time of being sort of at the stage I'm at with uh, our brand and product developments and everything is, is that, you know, the typical view of balance is to have, you know, work hard and rest in balance. Mm -hmm. And for me right now, it's definitely work hard and then also get outside and play hard. <laughs> so I'm balancing indoor and outdoor time, but not necessarily um, action and rest. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to, to bottle up the rest in the, uh, you know, sort of active recovery, let's say outdoors. <laughs> so, so yeah. Do you feel like you're getting better at it? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, you know, accepting that I'm not, I'm, you know, just going to be working really hard for a period of time here and look forward to those times I can take breaks accepting and then figuring out sort of a schedule that works that keeps everything going um, is helpful and I am getting better at it. Something that I do that I try not to do anymore is, you know, once I figure out what works for me, I, I feel like I have to give that knowledge to my friends and my family and my loved ones, but uh, not all the time does it work for them. I wonder if, uh, if you're similar or am I, am I just a little wacky? <laughs> <laughs> I think that I definitely share what my successes are. Also, maybe I don't recommend the fact that I tend to live my life like it's an endurance sport all the time in every aspect of it. 
And if anything, I more staunchly warn people to, you know, not do what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've figured out some sort of magic recipe. (laughs) Um, But I do share when I feel good about the progress or the the pseudo balance that I'm achieving in my life. And I do talk about it. Oh, that's great. So you're the opposite of me then. (laughs) Oh, I guess I'm the opposite. Yeah, not the same. The opposite. (laughs) Don't do what I do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I like that. You said that uh, you tend to live your life like it's an endurance sport. Mm -hmm. Have you always been like that? I think so. Okay. (laughs) Yes. I don't see any end in sight either. So you were an active kid then? Yeah, definitely. Were you adventurous as a kid? Well, I grew up in Ontario and Canada, which in its own way, I had my types of adventures. My grandparents had a little cabin up north and we used to go, you know, canoeing and fishing and swimming to this nearby island with a mask and snorkel that was probably really only like 100 feet offshore. Mm-hmm. And and that sort of was laid the foundation for me being open-minded to explore more as I grew into being an adult and moving out west, I grew up in Ontario, Canada, moved out west to British Columbia for university, and then just sort of had my eyes open to the possibilities of the types of adventures that you can have out west. And that led to trips to Alaska, eventually moving to Alaska, and um, it kind of just all grew from there. But I think I had some good seeds <laughs> from my youth of camping and cabin adventuring that led me here. Can you think back on those cabining experiences when you were younger and, um, I don't know, maybe describe one? So my grandparents had a really tiny little cabin, you know, outhouse, no power, no water and everything. And my favorite thing ever when I was a kid was to go swimming. And it was a spring fed, really cold lake, but I would go swimming all of the time. And I clearly remember the first time my grandparents would let me swim to the island without another adult in the water with me. But my grandfather, Mm -hmm. of course, canoed along beside me. So I had my mask and snorkel, uh, may or may not have had to wear a life jacket. And I swam from the little tiny beach and dock over to this island and could see you know, not tropical fish. We're talking like bass and perch fish swimming underneath. My grandfather had brought his fishing pole and he put um, a little piece of bait on the hook and I he dropped the line into the water and I remember seeing a bass swim over and bite onto the worm on the end of the hook and him catching it. <laughs> so I don't know why that's what came to mind, but you asked me to share one, so that's it. I wonder if... If that sticks out in your mind because, you know, you were a part of it, you were a part of that, like almost unseen action. You know, if mm-hmm. you're fishing, you, you toss the lure in, it goes mm-hmm. under the water and mm-hmm. you don't really ever see it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's super vivid memory. And I think I just really liked the freedom and serious exploration of that sort of like uncharted underwater experience and now that you bring it up, uh, I would say that that actually is a really similar feeling I have when I'm out hiking in the mountains here or out on one of our long kayaking or pack rafting type of trips mm-hmm. is kind of this like vast, uh, really cool um, unknown that's mostly only occupied by animals that aren't humans. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and just discovering the different aspects of those landscapes and things. Yeah, that's great. I wonder, you know, when you're out there in the Alaskan wilderness, what kinds of things do you see that maybe give you that feeling? Sometimes it connects back to that underwater memory and experience. You know, I've done a lot of kayaking in in southeast Alaska. We kayaked from Huna to Sitka, Alaska, and I just love cruising along paddling along really close to the shoreline with the clear views into the water. Um, You know, the sort of deep, dark teals and turquoise waters where you can sort of see the um, kelp and whatnot and the sea stars and the intertidal zones and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I feel like when I'm peering into those kinds of views or when you get to the summit of the mountain and you're looking off and you can see the tops of many other mountains, um, 
and maybe you know you have that good fortune to see a pack of um, a herd of sheep or goats or something up in the mountains or birds even um, it has that sort of similar feeling yeah it's that feeling of seeing things that so often go unseen yeah and that we're just like other animals on this planet Mm -hmm. do you think it grounds you definitely yeah, I don't have much to elaborate elaborate on that, but yeah, it definitely grounds you, but also, yeah, it makes you just feel kind of whole with the world to get kind of in that direction. Mm-hmm. It boils down your day-to-day problems of troubleshooting on things on the computer or driving around across town and things like that down, you know, it, it kind of dissolves them away and you just kind of realize that you are just a human, you're just a physical being living your life in this physical world. Mm-hmm. I think that those those relationships to nature that that bring you back to reality are so important mm-hmm. because so often we just get so caught up in um I think like these man-made constructs, you know, like I was saying earlier, I spent so much time in front of my computer and, you know, this computer didn't grow on a tree, <laughs> you know, like this computer was completely man-made for doing you know, man-made things. Mm-hmm. Definitely. The only time I relate to that feeling um, in my non-nature spending life, <laughs> the aspects of my life that aren't spent in nature, mm-hmm. is that fortunately with the type of work I do, I do have some opportunity to do some hands-on things. And though you're using machines such as sewing machines uh, or scissors or fabrics that have been made you are having a physical experience that you are you know manipulating physical materials holding them touching them moving them around moving them within space and then putting them to something like a sewing machine and constructing something so that really gets you in some ways um you know more grounded than the computer-based tasks that that also have to get done to do the job (laughs) Yeah, because they're physical. You're using your mm-hmm. hands. Mm-hmm. When did you first start sewing and making clothes? I got into sewing when I was a really young child. My mother, like my mom had sewed her own wedding dress and she had sewn dresses for me and stuff when she was when I was little. And my grandmother had always made quilts and things like that. So I think I had like an awareness or interest or immersion in some sewing from a pretty young age. When I was about 12, I made a ton of my own clothes that I wore, like corduroy pants and dresses and stuff like that. And then I didn't touch a sewing machine or think about anything sewing related. I more worked, I got my education and worked in um, tangentially related to sewn products, but not physically with the actual materials and things for a number of years. And then when I decided that I wanted to start this the designing the products that um, we make with Alpine Fit, I rekindled my passion, interest, and um, you know hands-on work in sewing because I wanted to be able to make the first samples and work with the sample fabrics that I was developing. So that was only recent. Do you feel like because? you you make these uh these pieces yourself that there's less room for error maybe maybe it's difficult for for you to kind of give the reins to somebody else i think if i zoom out to like 30,000 feet or something and speak sort of more broadly to this issue um for me the point of designing and developing and bringing into this world any products would be that they're in line with exactly uh, a certain niche target customer that's going to want to use them um, with the certain design elements that's going to be the most well-suited to that purpose. There are plenty of outdoor, you know, we make make adventure essential pieces, base layers and accessories, and our main focus is comfort and fit. So we're talking about base layer tops you can wear for a week-long adventure or your most essential little Nordic... Uh, so we have a Nordic Anywhere Merino wool hat, but a, a lightweight Merino wool hat that you can wear just as easily for a trail run or layered under your bike helmet or things like that. Mm-hmm. So 
to speak specific, as specifically as I can to your question, um, I think that the way I've chosen to design, develop, and make these products is all in line with making sure that they are tailored really specifically to this sort of outdoor adventurer that has multiple different types of outdoor activities. And they live, for now, they live in the Pacific Northwest, Alaska specifically, but of course that those types of adventures extend to other places. Um, and so, yes, having control of it from even as deep as the fiber level is important and something that I'm not inclined to want to give up. I have had to delegate certain other aspects of <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, what we actually accomplish as a business. <laughs> I yeah. don't do everything from fiber to um, putting the hang tag sticker on myself anymore, <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, I definitely, and that was, that's hard too, because I definitely want to have this, but, but anyway, having a team and working with um, teammates that really have your same level of care and understanding and yeah, kind of having the oversight and the control of the whole process is essential and is still important, but you can't do it alone. You have to have team members and you have to have awesome team members that are willing to work with you towards bringing these things to life. So yeah, we have great fabric and fiber mill supplier partners. So we developed like the fabric that we use from the ground up with those partners. Then we bring the fabrics up here to Anchorage and then we carefully design and develop, you know, where the style lines of the garment are so that they're most functional with wearing backpack straps and they fit and flatter multiple different body shapes. We have the two different fit options and, you know, develop those, sew them here um, and then it just goes on from there. So there's a lot of control and oversight, but there's also definitely teamwork that happens uh, with strategic teammates and partners. Mm -hmm. And the reason I asked that question is because I've found that through doing this podcast, I also have another podcast. I also uh, put together magazines and would write articles for newspapers and magazines. And I found that uh, it was very difficult for me to delegate because in my mind, I have this vision and I know exactly what I want it to look like. So to try to take that and give it to somebody else without missing anything was very difficult. Yeah, uh, I can see that. And I have the biggest challenge for me and the biggest thing that I, you know, have grown into embracing is delegation and in in many ways finding people that are way better at, than me at the things that I'm thrilled to delegate to them, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, like one of our, um, you know, stitchers, for instance, has so such a rich and broad and deep knowledge of how to produce and construct every aspect of the garments that, that are the designs that came from, you know, my mind, but she can execute them so beautifully at the sewing machine. Um, you know, again, it just extends to finding the right the right people that you can trust, I guess, to delegate. And at some point you can't grow without delegation. So you just have to do it. <laughs> what did that feel like when, when you realized that, that, that other person was, was so good at that? Awesome. Like, <laughs> yay. <laughs> um, I don't know, like just, okay, we could do this. <laughs> We can be bigger than just me. I imagine that was just like a wave of, I don't know, calm and satisfaction, you know, because it's almost like handing your baby off and being like, you, you can hold it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to make sure you can, you can feed it and it's going to be okay. And then you realize like, oh, okay, like maybe it's not as, as precious as I thought and that other people can help and yeah. their input is valuable. Yeah, well, I mean, another example is another teammate that is so good at building systems to organize our plans and design documentation and development, you know, style development documentation and has a deep knowledge of the materials and fabrics as well. And so there's a lot of like camaraderie and good work that gets done by us discussing things 
that are design related that progress things forward. So mm-hmm. I would say that if it was just me alone, we couldn't be where we are at. We have to have these other people that bring questions and topics to the, the table and other outside, you know, uh, breadth of knowledge to really propel things forward. So it's scary. It feels risky and terrifying, but it's also like exciting and feels like this is the only way this can be bigger or better or, or more in line with what I want it to be. Do you ever think about what you'd be doing if you weren't doing this? I can't really imagine what that would be. I my I had someone that I was speaking with. I was speaking with somebody over the holidays. And they were telling me that if <laughs> they won the lottery, they would quit their job tomorrow. And then they said to me, what would you do? And I was like, I'd probably spend some of that money on growing the business. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't quit what I'm doing if I won the lottery. I can't imagine what else I would be doing. I've chosen this to be what I want to do. That reminds me of, uh, so a while back, my grandpa, he, um, he retired, but he just kept working. Mm-hmm. And my grandma was like, I, I don't know why he keeps working. I don't know why he keeps doing it. He doesn't need to. He retired. And then I remember this one time he, he spoke up and he's like, what else am I going to do? You know, like mm-hmm. I'm going to sit around the house. I'm going to be bored. Um, so he, he continued to work and he continued to go on walks and things like that. And then, you know, fast forwarding however many years more recently, I'm talking to my wife and saying, I think I'm going to do what my grandpa did. You know, I can't Mm -hmm. imagine retiring and then just doing nothing. Yeah. Uh, my dad's kind of doing the same. He's 67. He'll turn 68 this year and he does not have any plans of retiring anytime soon. And he seems to be working harder than ever. So that like puts in context my life lived as an endurance sport thing. I'm like, okay, well, at some point it's got to like (laughs) 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 maybe dial down to like (laughs) some other pace. Um, (laughs) Maybe a few more rest stations along the way. I don't know, but... (laughs) So do you look at your dad and think like, he's not slowing down. I'm probably not going to slow down. It it does worry me a little bit, but (laughs) I definitely got upset with him on the phone recently. Like, dad, what are you doing? (laughs) You need to take more vacation and breaks. Uh, This is why I I don't tell people to live their life like me. (laughs) Earlier, you said that your mom sewed her own wedding dress. What did her wedding dress look like? Um, well, I've only, oh, I guess I, I did, she did have it. I haven't lived at home in a long time, so I haven't seen it in a lot of years. Um, it was like, a white eyelet sort of fabric. And I mean, they got married in the mid seventies. So it was very, um, sort of probably classic for that time. Just like a really pretty white cotton eyelet fabric dress and she also made like her bridesmaid dress and the flower girl's dress and the grooms men's shirts and the like ring bearer boys shirt Mm -hmm. um and the shirts for the men were orange gingham so gingham is like that really narrow plaid that you see in like men's dress shirts and stuff it was orange and white gingham and she also made the matching tablecloths with that so if i can paint a picture of what a mid-70s wedding looks like uh she and my dad both had long hair (laughs) um (laughs) my dad had a long beard and leather platform shoes my dad I mean um (laughs) so yeah it was very 1970s but very beautiful I wrote that question down earlier because I was like you know to make the decision to create and sew the things that you'll be wearing and other people will be wearing on potentially the most important day of your life to me it like said something and i'm 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 trying to think of what it is hmm. you know it's it's really i don't know it, it almost makes that day even more special yeah i can see that um when you started saying that i thought you were going in another direction because what i 
endeavor to do with the designs I put out into the world are make them are make things that you are going to bring on really important trips in your life. You know, you go on a backpacking trip, you're bringing one long sleeve shirt. So it better be comfortable for sweating while you're hiking, you know, shove it in the bottom of your pack, pull it out. It's not a wrinkled mess. We have the silver and the fiber of some of our fabrics that is antimicrobial, which means it's odor uh, eliminating. You could wear it for a week without the body odor buildup and things like that. So I, if I had to re- try to relate to my mom wanting to make her own wedding dress, it's kind of like you want to make this perfect thing for the thing that you really care about. Yeah, I, I like that. I feel like uh, maybe that's where I was going with it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's where you set my mind off going with it. <laughs> we got there together, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> this is a team effort. See, team effort. You're, you're on the team. <laughs> there we go. We're, we're right there. We're of the same mind. <laughs> what can you tell me about developing the silver fabric sterling? Well, that's a great question. I really wanted to design this ultimate fabric for year-round adventuring in Alaska, whether that be you have a busy life and you're getting out for a couple after-work hikes every week and you don't have the the most time in your schedule to have made sure you have clean, fresh gear packed in the back of your car or the bottom of your bag every day. Mm-hmm. Um, or you have the opportunity to get out for one of those like week-long adventures, whether that's camping or backpacking, pack rafting, kayaking, any of the cool things you can do in the wilderness. So of course I also love merino wool and we do work with merino wool as well. I do find that that has more of a winter functionality in my personal wardrobe um, because it doesn't have the quick drying component as well as synthetic fibers. So I set out to develop the sort of uh, quick dry answer to a merino wool fabric to have in your arsenal. And That meant working with a synthetic-based fiber, so we, um, our current version of our sterling fabric is developed with a recycled poly base and then this silver fiber called Ionic Plus. And that special fiber was a hard thing to develop to work with um, when you're, when I was just starting to have, um, you know, designs and a business and a brand. So I went straight to the fiber supplier level. I contacted the parent company of that fiber maker and arranged a meeting with them. I told them I'm small. I don't have products for sale yet, but I really want to work with your fiber for this reason. And whatever level of seriousness I must have conveyed to them, they received. (laughs) And I met them for a meeting, which meant spending money. I had to fly to Seattle to meet with them and present my idea of what I wanted to do and uh, have them allow me to work with their fiber and connect me with certified mills that can work with their fiber, which is what led us to um, a California-based fabric supplier, a fabric mill that we work with. So they were able to work with this fiber and we were able to work with a fabric supplier to develop um, this quick drying odor eliminating year-round Alaska fabric and we still work with that same fiber supplier and that original fiber um, you know three years in after having developed that fabric. Mm -hmm. How often do you field test products? All the time. This past weekend cabin trip that we went on I was wear testing a new merino wool development that we have in the works for this coming fall. Um, We have a supplier for a responsible wool standard merino wool, which I'm super excited about and making a more durable merino wool knit that um, both is responsibly sourced, but also functions really well. So we're testing new base layer bottoms this past weekend, but I would say any given day, I'm probably wearing something. I'm wearing something right now. I'm wearing a a base layer top. (laughs) We're a test sample right now. All the time. And how often do, does it turn out well? You know, you're like, okay, this is, this went well. That trip went, went well. I enjoyed the, the piece of clothing. Let's go with it. Well, there's several different types of things that you might be approving. There's the fabric itself, which you definitely want to make sure is, um, you know, durable and withstands the use that you want to put it through. Um, but the thing that fails more often that needs to go through more iterations is the actual design and the shaping of the individual garment and style. 
and we offer two different fit shapes. We offer wild iris fit, which is like a straighter shape for women's body shapes, uh, and then azalea fit, which is curvier in the bust and the hips. So we need to develop two different base patterns for one, you know, visual finished looking style that you might see. And then we also offer each fit in six sizes. So there's quite a lot of work that goes into, you know, designing what the look of it should be. Then um, getting it into a physical sample that gets tried on the physical person of the size and fit. Mm-hmm. And then seeing how that moves and works with you for the activity. Does it stretch here and there where you need it to? Can you bend your knee as far as need it to? Okay, we need to add another, you know, fraction of an inch here or lengthen or shorten something there. Adjust where the style line hits so there's not as much chafing or less or anything like that. So um, in terms of like a failure rate, oh man, I don't, It's that's hard. I don't have an, a straight answer on that. Um, but there's so many components that you need to progress through after you approve the fabric. So I would say usually about three iterations of a style after you've approved the fabric. What do you think are some of the opportunities and also some of the challenges that come with developing products in Alaska? The opportunity is is that we live in one of the best testing grounds and um, with a huge, broad variety of activities that we can put it through like immediately so um you're really you know if you're an outdoor loving adventure person living and working here in anchorage alaska you have the opportunity to have any type of wilderness activity you know the same day that you think of it that you want to go do it um so if we design this new merino wool base layer we can still have the opportunity to go test it out or, sorry, I'm kind of going on a tangent here. There's a huge opportunity for design and testing in rapid fire. Mm-hmm. Then what was the other component of your thing, your question? Challenges. Challenges. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> so with the exact opportunity of the geographical location of being here in Anchorage, Alaska, of being able to have your workspace and your design space be right near the mountains you want to go recreate in and test it in there's also the geographical challenge of getting the raw materials here and not having a large base of um, industry or community that is sort of analogous or supportive or synergistic with what we do so that means planning ahead on getting your materials getting the types of equipment you need um threads trims attachments for the machines so you can you know put on things like neck bindings in the way that you want and trims and notions like other elastics and things you might need to make the finished style so it does take planning and being pretty strategic about what you choose to make with what materials you get so i had interviewed other businesses that make sewn products in alaska and one of the big takeaways i had is is that they bring up a lot of the same raw material and make many different products from it. So my design constraints largely rely on me wanting to work with a fewer number of suppliers and a fewer different variety of raw materials and making great products that are that are that those those fabrics are very well suited for. So we're not going to go like base layer and then the next thing we're going to make is rain jacket. That's not synergistic. They're not the same fabric suppliers. They're two different shipments of fabrics. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to bring something up here on, you know, a pallet by the pallet on a boat. You need to be mindful of what you're bringing up.
you ever have your kids test out any products? <laughs> uh, yes. They can wear accessories pretty easily, you know, neck warmers and ha hats and things like that. And my son is just big enough to wear, you know, a men's extra small base layer shirt is still a little big on him. He's nine. And um, my daughter is seven. She can try to wear an extra small women's top. Um, but I don't know if they're testing it so much as being like biggest fan supporter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but either way, they're definitely excited. Does sustainability figure into the business choices you make and the products you produce at all? Absolutely. Uh, so definitely working with fabric mills that have really good standards for material usage, wastewater management, and things like that. Seeking recycled fibers everywhere possible. I mentioned responsible wool standard is the new highest standard for merino wool um, and finding suppliers that we can work with to make sure that everything from the fiber level to the material waste to what we're doing with um, packaging and things like that. We use a lot of uh, paper packaging type products as opposed to plastic packaging type products. And then also consolidating the shipments that we bring up here. Like I already mentioned, mm -hmm. if we order much of few materials, it's fewer shipments and bring it up by the, you know, the shipping channels that we decide to use and things like that. So, yes, it, it infiltrates every single level of every aspect of what we're doing. I mean, we like to use... Uh, we, like to, we like to recreate outdoors. Therefore, we have to make business decisions in line with our values of caring and appreciating for the environment and nature. Mm -hmm. This next question gets a little philosophical. Okay. I think we've already been there. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let's hear it. <laughs> I was wondering if the clothes we choose to wear in any way affects how we think about the planet, our place in it, and then also how we care for it. It does. I mean, on a really clinical level, the base layer top that we make, having the permanent antimicrobial fiber, it's not a chemical that's washed in, washed out. It's inherent to the fiber. You can wear it for uh, very extended periods without washing it, which, you know, reducing how often you wash garments is reported that, you know, is, is good, is a good thing in environmental consideration. Um, and on uh, the more philosophical level, I think that someone who is mindful of their buying choices is probably mindful. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to make jump to assumptions here, but when you're mindfully choosing to purchase a product that is useful for many of your different life's activities and you're buying it from a brand that has values you believe in and resonate with you, I believe that those things go hand in hand with being more mindful about everything you're doing in your life, including the way you're treating and using nature. Mm -hmm. So it may not be cause and effect, but um, I think that having products out there that are these mindful things that people can mindfully choose and feel good about just makes people more present to the whole the whole thing. Mm -hmm. What kind of products are you mindful about buying? I do not buy a lot of new things. Light, I, I, I'm very careful about my purchasing decisions. Mm -hmm. I try to um, make do with what I have or repair what I have until a need um, or a want, I suppose, emerges to do something and I don't have, you know, I, I need to consider purchasing something new. And then when I do, I do seek to support businesses that I care about and feel good about supporting. So that may be trying to find it at your local retailer that you personally might know the owner of that you want to support and who employs people locally. Or it may be finding the brands that really make you feel 
good about the decision you've made to spend money somewhere, whether it's the materials they use, their values as a business, what they give back to the world. Um, and for me, I have a great network of women-led brands that I've been recently really connected with. So a lot of the things that I think about purchasing, I often consider these women-led gear brands that are doing a lot of great things first and try to, to, to purchase products from them. Um, or even better, if it can be their products and a local retailer. Let me know if this next question is just off the mark. Okay. And if it is, we can just move on. But how much does Alpine Fit's message speak to women in a way that pushes back on norms? Fit options for body shapes. It's not something that's really done in the outdoor apparel industry. I have had so many stories from people who have tried to purchase outdoor gear for the adventures that they want to do and had just uh, disheartening or frankly upsetting uh, experiences shopping for and trying to wear certain types of gear. Um, the fact that we offer a curvier fit and a straighter fit in our women's clothing really resonates with people. And the fact that our sizes are from extra small to double extra large, and we would like to extend that size range further. But the number of people who have been delighted that we have double extra large, and we have double extra large in a curvy fit and a straight fit, um, and in many cases, women that expect to maybe need to wear or wear our double extra large actually wear our sing single extra large. Uh, these sorts of things are profoundly um, impactful for women customers and you know we have a lot of we've had a lot of direct positive feedback from women and uh, feedback on our website and just great conversations around it um, the opportunity is 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 there to even do better in that realm as well I have like 12 black shirts <laughs> and like five pairs of black Levi's. So my mind is, is, um, or my style is about as far from, from this as you can get. So I was wondering if, if there was a point in your life where you realized that there needed to be for women, this greater variety of different fits. Sure. Every brand that I've ever worked with and every brand that any woman has ever tried to purchase, they just they just kind of know. Women just know, oh, that brand fits me, that brand doesn't. And it doesn't matter if you go up a size, go down a size. It's just the life experience of being a woman shopping for clothes, for outdoor gear. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, brands that I've worked with that I've loved the products, I've just made it work to wear a size that didn't fit me very well. Mm -hmm. um, additionally, I owned a lingerie and swimwear store for five years, and I carried um, a Scandinavian brand called Change Lingerie that offered over 100 bra sizes, and most bra brands uh, offer 24 to th or 36 sizes, and every single woman could get a custom-like fit. Um, they had just over 100 combinations of, of uh, band and cuff size. So... Those kind of experiences all combined to knowing that this is something that needed to be offered. As an outdoor brand. Yeah. As if I was going to bother to make a product that's going to exist in the world and we're going to have this awesome technology in the fabric and the designs that work functionally for these variety of outdoor activities, I absolutely want to fit the most number of customers possible. And there's there's really good data out there on the the sort of body measurements of North American and global female populations. And it was just an essential component of it to at least try to fit more body shapes. Mm -hmm. and, and we're succeeding at it, um, but it, it's just essential. Without giving any names, I wonder if, if you've had any experiences with customers who are just like, thank you for doing this. Absolutely. So many people. I mean, I just got an email that we got a new five-star review on our website 
for our bushwhacking leggings. And I didn't look up who the customer name is or what size and fit they are, but um, that product in particular, our bushwhacking leggings, it's a technical pant that you can wear as a hiking legging pant hybrid. That pant alone has uh, garnered, for lack of a better word, so many in-person email, phone, text, DM messages saying, I cannot believe that these pants fit so well. Thank you. Um, I can actually go do the XYZ activity with my kids or um, I have the thing that I can go on this backpacking trip now, etc. Um, I can't believe that this actually fits. Nothing ever fits my waist and my hips at the same time. Or these kinds of things. So yeah, definitely. And again, to get a little philosophical, something that just keeps going through my mind is, and I don't even know where I heard it from, but if you look good, you feel good, mm-hmm. right? And so to me, that that gets to this this mindset of of not being so so anxious, so down in yourself, you know, you look good, so you're feeling good. Yeah, the way I always think of phrasing that is is that our products make you feel good in comfort and appearance. Okay. So it's basically the same thing that you're saying, but it's true. I mean, in the age where we're spending so much of some of our life digitally plugged in, there's a lot of times where there's pictures of you or pictures of other people and, um, you know, you want to feel like you look good mm-hmm. when you're doing the certain things. And then our focus on also it fitting you well so you feel really comfortable while also, you know, it fits you really well so it also looks good mm-hmm. <laughs> is is just all part of, of what we're doing. The base layer fabric we work with also is designed to not be one of those super like clingy sort of fabrics. So it's, you know, forgiving of how it looks when it's where it worn fitted and next to your skin. Um, the style lines are designed to be flattering as well. And to, for the, both of those purposes, comfort, you know, it's not chafing with backpack straps, but appearance to just, you know, package that up really, really nicely for your experience. Mm-hmm. So I read on the Alpine Fit website that from 2004 to 2009, you fell in love with Expedition type trips kayaking the outer islands of Alaska's southeast coastline. Was that the trip where you kayaked from Huna to Sitka that you talked about earlier? Yeah, one of those trips was that trip. Yeah, it was a three-week trip, um, which I think is about a... um, I think it was 175 miles, something like that. Um, And yes, that was the trip I referenced earlier. 175 miles. That's pretty wild. Yeah, it was pretty spectacular. There was a period of nine days during that trip where we did not see another person, another boat, another anything. It was just us in our little group and nature. How often were you just on the ocean? You know, no land is in sight. Not too much because, again, the safety and comfort level of the group and just safety, your own personal safety, often we would just skirt the coastline. Mm-hmm. So there may be times when you're crossing from, you know, one island to another island or crossing the opening of an inlet or something like that. Uh, but you were never out of sight of land, but you might have been up to a mile or something from the other side of land that you were approaching. You know, something that just hit me and I'm realizing I'm really late on this, but you're making clothing for adventures that you're doing. So you're, you're, you're an active participant in all of this. Absolutely. Um, somebody, uh, would recently said, suggested that I'm the bullseye of my target market. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's true. (laughs) And that, that extends back to the other, the other questions you were asking just about the control and everything that I was trying to speak to there too, is just, you know, there is a level and understanding of how this gear needs to be able to be used in the outdoors. So I cannot give up certain control and oversight of what design details, fabrics, and functionality are in, in, in the product because it has to work in the settings that I am deeply familiar with. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about the longer that you do this, 
the more that you may no longer be that target demographic and how you can still make clothing for that demographic? Sure. I mean, I hope that uh, I'll keep going like that endurance sport and want to do these kinds of things forever. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I also recognize that we need to make sure that we grow and expand our team to include other members um, of different generations or backgrounds and things like that and other activities that are done. And um, also just like continually seeking like the customer feedback and you need to design, um, you know, you can't design by consensus, but it is really important to have sort of a customer discovery and user discovery part of your um, sort of research and development of products that informs what you choose to design to put out there. Someday, Alpine Fit may grow to be a much, much bigger company and employ additional designers on the team. And certainly it would look for, um, you know, complementary and current and different experiences or more, I, I don't really know how to word what I want to say, but I, I, I definitely am mindful of that and want to stay on the cutting edge of what's needed for outdoor recreation and adventure. And if we've learned anything from your dad in this podcast, it's that you'll (laughs) continue being active for a long time. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Going back to those trips, like the one where you kayaked from Huna to Sitka, did you learn anything that you've held on to? That informs my design or just in general? Maybe both, actually. I, in general, I have learned how important it is to have a trip that you completely disconnect from everything, ideally on at least an annual basis. That original trip was from a time before having children. And fortunately now in this time of life where I have children, I have the great fortune of having in-laws as well as my own parents that value spending time one-on-one with our kids. So our kids go to the grandparents' homes for a period of time in the summer. And my husband and I can still get out on a long extended wilderness adventure. Mm -hmm. We've done pack rafting trips in the Brooks Range and Gates of the Arctic National Park. This summer we're doing a trip down uh, on Admiralty Island in Southeast Alaska near Juneau. And it's just such an important, valuable part to disconnect from computer connectedness, driving your car, all of that, and spend time in the wilderness if you have the opportunity to. There are other smaller micro type adventures that you can do, like just a long day outside if you if you can. Um, you know, obviously it's a very fortunate position that I'm in to be able to go and go and do those things. Um, but just the value of that disconnecting in whatever form feels good or right for you, and then. Design-wise, those trips definitely informed my design choices. I really have this need to design and develop the key core pieces that function for these variety of activities, but also are like the one thing you choose to bring on the adventure. So that keeps our design variety very narrow and focused, like a capsule adventure wardrobe focus. And that definitely has come out of those trips. You know, the one long sleeve shirt you can bring, the one set of base layers you can bring, Mm -hmm. uh, the one headband or hat or whatever it is you need. You know, our product that that I design needs to answer that call. In your mind, what does it mean to be a startup in Alaska? It's pretty awesome. There's a really wonderful community supporting startups here. There's uh, a lot of excitement and interest in um, and support from the UAA Center for Economic Development, the Made in Alaska program, uh, G-Beta, which is like a pre-accelerator is helping uh, early stage startups in Alaska kind of get ready for next stages of growth. There is a huge, huge community here excited to support being a startup. It's a challenging interesting place to do business and start a business but i think the way of the future is is that people want to live where they can have the life and uh work 
kind of work together in balance that they want. And Anchorage is a great place to do that. So for me, I feel very supported as a startup business in Alaska and uh, encourage people who are willing to live their life as an endurance sport to do it. (laughs) (laughs) You were awarded the 2020 Manufacturer of the Year by the state of Alaska. What do you think it took to get there? We majorly pivoted in the early stages of COVID to produce face masks at the early needs when the, the, the PPE grade um, medical grade face masks were not readily available for healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. We literally secured materials and started mass making face masks for essential businesses um, healthcare offices, like workers that weren't on the front lines and things like that. And we managed to keep our team employed and not have to let anyone go during the COVID. Um, you know, the early days when a lot of people were getting laid off and furloughed and things like that, we kept Mm -hmm. our business going. We worked with, yeah, we worked with the state of Alaska to, um, have a substitute medical grade face mask, uh, be specified and approved for production and use and and just all of these kinds of things so we we kind of just like rose to the challenge of something that our community needed and we had the equipment to do and then also didn't I felt like I needed to do it to I had a a mantra or whatever at that time that was make something that makes a difference (laughs) weather Mm -hmm. the storm keep our team employed and we did it (laughs) and was that you that decided to make the face masks to, to pivot in that way? Uh, yes, it was. Was that just like an aha moment or were you at home and you're just like, I got it. It was just kind of a weird combination of things. I had traveled right at the beginning of March for like a really brief trip, like a five day trip, March of 2020. And it was just like so obviously coming to the fore. Like I traveled on day one, traveled back on day five, and the difference in behaviors of using sanitizers and disinfectants and things um, were just like so much different on day one to day five of traveling and people starting to wear face masks. And then the news reports of the hospitals not being able to get their medical grade PPE and things like that. And I just like, for whatever reason, when I came back from that trip, I didn't return to the office right away because that was the early days of COVID. We didn't know since I had been traveling, I thought I should just stay away a little bit. And I just randomly found some cotton material and on my home sewing machine, like cut up some fabric and sewed a face mask, took pictures of it. And then I I just thought I should just put it out into the world that we're making, going to make face masks. And I just had basically my first face mask made and Mm -hmm. I posted it online as available to sell. And we sold like just the most bizarre. I posted it on Etsy, which we don't use Etsy for our normal products, but I just posted it up there because I thought I'd just put it out in the world and see if there was a demand for this because I thought this is how what products we can make and keep our the, that mantra going. And um, in two days, we sold um, something like 450 face masks on Etsy when I had never had an Etsy account before or had products posted up there before. Oh, wow. And I was like, I had to shut it off because I was like, now we have to make 450 face masks. That's like a product that I've just prototyped. Like, what is happening? (laughs) Yeah. So I shut that off. I was like, plus, we need to make them all for Alaska because we're geographically separated from the rest of the country. Like we we need to. (laughs) I was like, holy. okay, there's a demand. Something's happening elsewhere that's not happening here just yet. So it's funny because I reached out. This is turning into a long story, but I reached out to. Um, some people in the manufacturing sort of government related community. And I was like, we can make face masks. I've secured some materials for making face masks. Like, uh, do I need to talk to someone in an official capacity about our ability to do this? We have a manufacturing. And they're like, oh, it's way too early for these kinds of conversations. And this was like March 15th or something. Okay. And then like two days later, the guidelines for wearing face masks got posted on the CDC website and like all of it, and the demand for face masks just went like through the roof. So it was like, literally I had this aha moment, like maybe two days before everyone in the whole country or at the same time. I don't know. It was just crazy. Yeah. Because I remember my last day in the office was March 22nd Yeah, because 
the calendar that I had that was right next to my computer. It was a, um, I forget what type of calendar. It, I know it was. It was a, a movie calendar. So movie trivia. And I forget what movie it was. It might have been like Shawshank Redemption. And it just sat there, <laughs> you know, forever because me and my coworkers were kind of staggering when we go in if we needed to go in mm-hmm. and i remember just seeing march 22nd march 22nd march 22nd um so yeah you were you were right right like a few weeks before all that went down yeah it was really bizarre and and crazy and i mean obviously the demand for them was increasing elsewhere because when i posted it online there was demand in the in the marketplace but then yeah, two weeks after that, if you went onto Etsy and saw advertisements for mask things, and then there was like all this stuff about elastic and materials being short and whatever. But anyway, we did it and we made thousands of masks that went to community members of Anchorage and Alaska. We were able to keep our team going, keep our business going. Um, we got to be open to work. We wore face masks all day, every day of those days. Um, but because we were providing an essential function, we were able to be classified under the essential businesses to, to be there working. And it's not working with sewing machines is not a job you can do remotely. So yeah, I, that was all part of it. Um, with the, with the state of Alaska manufacturer of the year award. When you think of the future of outdoor clothing, what does it look like? I think the future for everyone is to value and spend time experiencing things, activities and adventures outdoors. So I think the future of outdoor clothing is centered around sustainable materials, versatile design, and getting more representation of different communities, comfortable spending time outside. And that ties together with the fit options for different body shapes and extended sizing and versatility in the functionality of the pieces. Mm-hmm. Well, Jennifer, that does it for my questions. That wasn't so bad, was it? Not so bad. I still get nervous about these things, but your questions were good. <laughs> and it was very, very calm. Uh, I'm just not uh, a laid back person. <laughs> so <laughs> I was always going to be... Uh, let's say excited uh, rather than nervous about something like this. (laughs) For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. 